Hello and welcome to Design Podcast, episode number two. Today we're here with artist Michael Frank. Michael, how do you describe your work? I describe it as often as I can. <laughs> um, my work, well, let me back up a bit. My work is largely digital. It is mostly made within the computer. I have a very... Uh, strong traditional background in drawing, painting, photography, uh, 25 years of advertising design. And um, per, pretty much now I define myself as an artist and most of that is uh, digital. So pretty much everything I'm doing is made within the computer with software programs like ZBrush, Photoshop, uh, Occasionally, some smaller programs like Bryce Pro, uh, Illustrator, things like that. Um, most of the work is composited in Photoshop, uh, basically made from the 2D aspect of wireframe design. So basically what I'm doing is I'm designing all of my objects as a 3D model, but instead of printing it out, I take the 2D aspect and I composite these parts in Photoshop for my large uh, flat pieces that I print out. In addition to that, um, I also do laser cutting, 3D printing, and uh, some handmade sculpture that's based on the same exploration of algorithms and uh, designs that I've come up with in the computer. So I characterize it as largely digital, even though much of it is still quite handmade and uh, drafted from the ground up. Awesome. So maybe we could look at a couple projects and you could explain your process and Absolutely. some of those ideas and maybe talk about those algorithms you did and um, the 2D to 3D. That sounds really interesting. Certainly. Or, or 3D to 2D, excuse me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I have here your Behance, right? And that's a good way for people to see some of your current work. Yeah. I think one of the best uh, places to see my work online is this uh, global site called Behance, which is a very good-looking, slick, sophisticated uh, production that uh, is pretty much viewed by millions of people. It's a great resource for designers and artists to upload their portfolios and uh, a good clearing ground for people who are looking to hire or be hired. Yeah. <laughs> what projects do you want to look at first? You could open them up. Uh, if you go to the top of my page on the left there, there's a uh, project called Dream Gardens. And this is pretty much a uh, an upload of some of my recent work that goes back about six or eight weeks. So how do you describe this project? And what, what was the uh, the process of creating this? There is largely, in every one of my pieces, a very strong uh, sensibility for describing a very um, dreamlike environment. I use a lot of information in my images to sort of map out uh, stuff that I've encountered in my dreams, because I spend a lot of time writing down what I see, mapping that territory, and thinking of it as a, uh, as a very distinct place. And for me, 
as a digital artist building these landscapes from the ground up, I sort of see myself as uh, an imaginary naturalist mapping my own uncharted territory, so to speak. And I have a very big background in scientific illustration and botany, and uh, all these things come together in a way that really appeals to me as an artist. Because one of the things that's very close to my heart is using modern methods in a sort of retro fashion where I'm almost reproducing a old-fashioned sensibility that harkens back to traditional art. So, you know, sometimes I, I look at my art and I say, well, these remind me of ancient postcards from the future or old paintings that are brought back to life because they're revisioned as some kind of futuristic modern landscape. And yet they still look like the old paintings of the, of the Hudson River School in the 1800s, or the illustrations of Audubon, or the photography of uh, Karl Blosfeldt. So in a way, it's almost like treating it like steampunk, where it's modern and retro and a little backward at the same time. So for me, it's kind of nice to twist that medium a bit and show people that modern technology isn't all spaceships and robots, you know. Uh, there's a real strong push on my part to render these environments that I encounter and relate them back to my experience, my intimate experience uh, recalling my dreams or operating as an illustrator looking at, uh, you know, the sidewalk and saying, okay, what's this world look like? that's two inches tall, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I have tons of questions as you're describing these fire things. Away, and fire away, fire away. Before I fire away, I want to maybe have you just present these projects and maybe for students who are uh, starting out in ZBrush maybe, or even um, people who are looking to compose an artwork and how to frame an artwork or even how you pick your subject matter and how you um, combine that with um, maybe even mechanical elements, even though they're so organic, right? Sure, And so absolutely. like this one here, I could, I could see um, the colors and, and um, the technique with the spikes and, and the, the plant and how you, how you frame it is quite interesting as well. Um, maybe talk a little bit about just what goes through your mind when you're making these. Yes. And then what are the backgrounds also, um, I guess, technically? when you're making these things. Yes. So maybe dissect this one first and we'll move on to the next one. Does that sound fine? Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, every object in the image is a separately made 3D model. So what looks like a very consistent image edge to edge is probably 18 or 19 models right here that are composited on top of each other. Uh, so basically what I've done is I've built the thistle on its own, the plants behind it, even the, uh, the background itself. So in an image like this, what I would start with, it wouldn't even be a concept for the background, it would be a concept for the design of the object itself. So the challenge here was to explore a lot of the different functions of the ZBrush program so that I could build this thistle with as much relative accuracy as possible. So 
I started with certain parts of it as if I were building a framework. And then piece by piece, I assembled it out of its components and constructed a few versions of it so that the leaves were different, the tops were different, uh, even the unfolding bulb of the, the, the flower part beneath it. So one thing I do when I'm building these things, instead of getting one good model that I like, I do iterations of it. So I've got seven or eight parts that look like different pieces together. I don't want to look like I'm stamping out the same object. So I take a lot of time to build many of them, even, even though I might be starting from scratch. So the idea is to be able to reproduce that sensibility over and over with a natural habit of my drawing and my sculpting abilities. And then I move on to other things uh, to flesh out the image, so to speak. Once the image is rendered out in ZBrush, I export it as a 2D part with its mask into Photoshop. And then I push and pull these parts around almost like working puzzle pieces uh, so that I get the image that you see here. So there are parts in the background that are blurred out. And then I have, in addition to all the things that I did to the model, I have all the extra tools that I would normally use in Photoshop. So I can use all the gradients and the brushes that are available to me in the Photoshop program as well. Uh, so I might spend, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours working on my models, and then I might end up spending one hour, two hours, five hours in Photoshop, pushing and pulling these things around. The other thing that's not easily evident is that I have a lot of material to pull from. So when I sit down to make an image, I have a vast library of models at my disposal. And I would probably be conservative in estimating that I've probably built about 50 to 60,000 of these models in the last six or eight years. So if you do the math and figure out how long it takes to build those, you can pretty much assume that I don't sleep. <laughs> so when I go to Photoshop, I have a basic expectation because I've got a few brand new models that I'm dying to work with and a bunch of old parts or other parts that I haven't used that I can put together. So I have whole folders full of grass or backgrounds or different types of gradients on top of those backgrounds different types of leaves, different types of other flora that I have built. And it might sound weird, but they all have license plate numbers. So I, my, my naming convention is a lot like license plate. Uh, so based on the position of the letters and the numbers, I know what type of files to search for when I'm building my images. So all of the grass images or all of the green images might have a certain prefix in their, in their name convention. So when I'm searching, I search the fields that I'm familiar with because I've named everything that I've built, which in a way is another thing that a naturalist would do when they're discovering new things and naming the parts of the world that they're discovering. 
So in another strange way, it just confirms or, or supports that idea that I'm sort of masquerading as some imaginary naturalist in this landscape that I'm, that I'm building. So uh, let's, let's go through a few more and uh, I can speak a little bit more to that effect. Here's another image where uh, you can see that there's a lot of depth and dimension in it. And a lot of this basically has to do with placing one object on top of another or looking at the image as if I were a photographer. Now, I have a lot of experience as an industrial photographer, so when I light my virtual objects, I'm using the same basic resources I would as if I were doing uh, tabletop photography in the studio. So the virtual process of lighting is almost identical to the actual process of lighting. It just so happens that my workspace is virtual. The idea is the same though. Now, I don't have the advantage of composing this all in one fell swoop because there isn't a computer that's big enough to, to actually do that. So basically what I do is I separate these components out and the things that recede into the background, I generally blur manually. Sometimes the background will get lighter as it goes back. Sometimes it will get darker. There's a lot of control that is available to me, not only as a designer in ZBrush, but also working with the controls in Photoshop. So when I'm building these things out, I basically have an idea about what I'm, what I can expect from the things that I'm making. So when I build the scene, it ends up looking very realistic. It behaves as if it's a real photograph because I'm sort of cheating it and building it as if it really were. And uh, you get good at that after a while. You start thinking it out that way. Um, the other thing that I pay a great deal of attention to is composition. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely necessary when you are building images that have a little bit of flexibility. Now, in ZBrush, before I've finished rendering an object, I can turn it around, make it larger or smaller, change the mesh on the outside, the coloration, the lighting, everything. But the instant I export it as a flat object into Photoshop, it is set in stone. I can't turn it around again. I can flip it backwards and truncate it, but I can't rotate it in three dimensions. Not easily. The 3D option in Photoshop isn't quite real, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know? Uh, so I'm limited to the parts I've got, so I hope I build the right ones, and then I do the best I can with the stuff that I've made. And if I find out that something's not quite right, I go backwards a few steps and I rebuild things. I go back into ZBrush and I rebuild that model. Or I say, I can't, I can't really get by without being able to turn this around or make it a little bit different or thinner. So I might rebuild it and then export it back into the Photoshop image. Uh, every once in a while, the images get quite dense. Although I like building objects that have a certain amount of complexity, 
one of the things that appeals to me greatly is to build an environment that is as convincing as possible. So part of that has to do with layering as many things as I can until I get to a point where I have to pull back because I've kind of overdone it. You know, there is a point at which you can go overboard. So uh, I spent a lot of time building things and putting them in so many layers that I kind of lose track. So what I've gotten in the habit of lately is conforming certain parts of the image into folders that have layers in them. Within Photoshop. And then the folders themselves are layered. Yeah. So I've gotten to situations where a very complex image that's quite large, not only in dimension but file size, might have as many as 700 layers in Photoshop. And that's a big number. Sometimes that number is a little bit too big to manage. So you have to start compressing things or sort of remembering what folders things originated in, so to speak. Before we go on to the next one, just because I struggle so much with composition and like it's such a big part of rendering like architecture. I mean, mm -hmm. I do architecture. So um, doing a render for a client or um, even just trying to look at a concept that I'm working through and, mm -hmm. and render it out. What is your process for a composition? Like what are some considerations when developing a composition? Are you looking for balance? Are you looking for um, symmetry, asymmetry? Like what, what is something that, is in, that interests you in composition or is it more organic and sort of whatever feels good? Um, Actually, it's a lot of those things at once, and I know that might sound like a complicated answer, but I can dissect that a bit. Um, there's always a focal point, there's always tension, there's always direction. Uh, in a lot of my images, I, I have a tendency to refer to something that I call local composition. And this is a habit that I got into as a photographer when I was directing the people that were working with me as an art director, I had to make sure that everybody's composition in all of their images was, was correct so that our books that we produced, our catalogs that we produced were consistent. And there are a hundred ways to do things right and about a thousand ways to do things wrong. So at the end of the day, you need things that sort of have the same basic flow. For, for the consistency of that, that project at hand. So what I would do is uh, I would take the Polaroid or the printout of the image that the, ima the photographers were working on and I would turn it upside down and I'd cut it in four to eight pieces. And then I'd turn it over and then I would look at all of these images and frequently there was a large amount of chaos it's like, if you've got a lot of stuff there, you can pretty much bet that when I cut your image up, I'm gonna get a lot of stuff back in each of these little squares. So what I started saying to these people that, that I was directing was, you need to make every part count. You need to make a composition out of every square. Everything that is abstract needs to be understood. So, when you go back to the set that's in front of you, you have to remind yourself that every square inch of that image has to breathe some sort of life, some sort of logic. 
One easy way of doing that is looking at everything overall. And if you have a good feel, that's a good start. But then there's a bit of, uh, a bit of measuring and harsh judgment that goes into it at that point. And you have to move things a little this way, a little that way. And you have to make sure that the, every little point makes sense relative to what it's touching or what it's near. And if something's not right in that immediate dimension, you have the option of fixing it. Presumably, you have the option. Sometimes you can't. But more often than not, all these, this little bit of attention to all these details at the same time is going to make for a much clearer composition that has its own motion and its own balance. It almost doesn't matter whether you're organizing three objects or 80. Both have to work well. Hmm. And one is not necessarily easier than the other. So, by looking at all of it at once and watching how things behave next to each other, you can get a feel for whether something is working or not. And this is something that I take to the nth degree in my images. And I feel that over the course of time, there is a natural flow to the way things work. I have a tendency to place objects a certain way or to invite tension between certain parts, to a little too close, a little too far. Sometimes, if there's a leaf standing out and the negative space is the same width as the leaf itself next to the next object, you've got an immediate situation where you've got a little bit of symmetry and you may not want that. So you have to move that leaf. You might say, okay, this guy is crazy. He's moving everything one leaf at a time. But this is something you need to think about every time you look at these images because pretty much every leaf is moved one piece at a time. So you're building a puzzle, but you're moving every last single piece before it's done. And it can be wrong until the last moment, but when it's right, you can practically hear it. So I'm that hoping... That me chills because I've been there. I, I know yeah, what you're talking about yeah. where... There's like a certain aura or vibration that happens once something is either uh, composed yes. in, a, in a way that says something to you yes. or, or it, it captures the vision you had in your head, maybe, exactly. or, or something emerges that you weren't expecting. And it's like, there well, it is, there's that song, you know, there's that aura that you were, you were hoping for. And, and if you're starting from a zero point where nothing's going on and you're ending in some final stage of, you know, complete amazement, you're responsible for every single stage. Mm -hmm. So there's room, there's wiggle room when you're building art like that because you can create and destroy and judge and nurture and help every step of the way. So in an odd way, a lot of that comes through as part of my subject matter because these landscapes are largely symbolic places that I think about a great deal in my private experience. It's not autobiographical, but it speaks a lot to my inner sensibilities. This is something I do a lot with everything I make. So occasionally somebody will say, you know, you don't have people running through your images. You don't have animals and you don't have birds, but there's a presence 
and I feel like I want to look around the frame to see what has already happened or what's about to happen mm. because there's a tension where that action is about to spring over and over. Another, another uh, friend of mine said, you know, it's always four o'clock in the afternoon in your pictures. There's a perfect moment and the light is always right and you can smell the grass and you can hear the breeze. I have no idea what's going on, but it's a good place to be. And that for me is kind of a nice thing to, to keep striving for, that there's a sort of harmonic balance, not only in a single image, but in that ongoing body of work that has continuity between an image made eight years ago to eight years into the future. And there's a strange continuity in the work that I did as a child. So I'm finding these, these capabilities, these work habits coming through over and over. And I keep reminding myself that each image is an opportunity to get a little bit closer to that slightly more perfect point of, of knowing what's essentially unknowable. You know, it's like a dream that you can't quite remember perfectly. You know that it's sideways, but you can't look directly at it, but you can sense it from an oblique angle. So in my images, a lot of that story is taking place outside of the frame, almost. So let's take a sort of formalist approach to this, and then we'll get back to meaning, maybe? Yeah. And so let's dissect these images um, like by saying this is again how you were doing in the beginning like this is the grass these are the tulips these are the yada yada and and whatever images you or whatever objects you've had modeled in here maybe we could start to name those objects and and talk about um their inception and maybe um again like very formally like the cylinder that you modeled for this or the spike like talk about how you do that and then Let's just flip through the images and say, you know, maybe you have names for each of these components that you've created, each of these, I call them kit aparts, maybe. And um, once we flip through these images for this project, then let's open it up for Q&A. We'll continue to have a conversation about okay. the meaning of these things. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, for instance, this one um, is quite different than the first one, uh, but also quite similar. So there's some similarities being that it's very organic and stuff, but we could get into that a little later. And... These you call tulips? Right? Well, they're thistles. Thistles. I'm yeah. sorry. Thistles. Sure. And then what do you call the area around that thistle? Like these are just the leaves, just well, the thorns? Well, you know, the, 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 the flower has its basic component parts, the petals, the stamens, the, okay. uh, the leaves, the, uh, the stem, and, and so on. There are uh, sharp fibers that generally accompany a lot of the, the leaves in the uh, thistles. So the fibers are are a native part of that uh, flower. Uh, as far as its construction, the sharp thorn parts are actually the fiber construction, the fiber function in the ZBrush program. Hmm. So uh, by selecting certain areas, I'm able to actually flesh it out by adding those things with the function that's available in the program. Uh, the, the basic bulb, the, 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 the collar around the petals 
is um, made with an array mesh where one little petal part is created. And these yes, okay. exactly. Uh, and with the array mesh function, I'm able to radially spread them around the, the, the sphere function that I had started with. And the thing about the, the ZBrush program too, is that there are so many brush functions that there are brush functions that paint on the surface, brush functions that uh, add texture and brush functions that themselves are an object. Mm -hmm. So when you click and drag with a petal that you built as a brush function, it appears. So I built a brush function out of a leaf, and by clicking and dragging on the stem, the leaf appears. Mm -hmm. And the brush function has seven or eight iterations. So while I'm drawing out the leaves, I toggle between the iterations so that every leaf isn't identical. So I went and I sculpted the leaf in anticipation of drawing it out on the stem. Nice. Uh, the petal portions, the, the little purple filaments that come out of the top, that is also a brush function, and it is uh, placed this with here? the... Yeah, okay. it's placed with the nano mesh function in uh, the ZBrush program, so that by selecting certain uh, parts of the mesh below it, you program the thing to grow according to as many parts as you've put in there. Uh, so another way I think of referring to the nanomesh function is that the brush function itself is an instance and you can program the instance to duplicate itself as many times as it wants to. If you go too far, you end up with so many polygons uh, that Crash. You, your computer crashes. <laughs> yeah. Um, been there. <laughs> been there too know, many times. <laughs> don't tell anybody, but yeah. Um, I'm, I'm working on an iMac that has about as much uh, RAM as it possibly can, so I'm probably not working with more than 8 to 12 gigs of RAM, and uh, I can't work with more than, say, 10 million polygons in an object. Mm. So I'm working at a bit of a disadvantage. But the nice thing about that is you have to make sure that the poly count of your objects is consistently low and correctly done so that you've got enough to work with in the long run. So I can design this whole flower out and it might have, you know, 8 million polygons. But if I decide to render two of them at the same time, then there's 16 million and my computer just does not want to cooperate. So uh, that's another reason why I build a lot of parts separately and then mm -hmm. import mm -hmm. them back into my program. An expert who's hearing me might say, well, hang on a second. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> there's always, a, there's always an answer. A cat, there's like always said. another way to there's do it. Why are you way, doing yeah. it this way? You don't need poly counts to be that high. You could build things different. For instance, if I were building characters for games, Sure. Yeah, I'd have to keep a like deliberately low poly count where it was managed carefully, you know, from one piece to the next. But as a 2D artist with a lot of time on my hands, <laughs> I can make these objects as complicated as possible. So when I make, you know, the file that I export into Photoshop might be 50 to 80 megs a piece. The image that I'm building in Photoshop might be up to a gig. And somebody else might say to me, 
you can print a great image at a fraction of that, so why would you do that? But there's a really great advantage, and that is size matters. I can print these images full size at 300 dpi, sometimes 6 by 8 feet. Jesus. And that is an insanely large file. The advantage to that is that I get something that is absolutely pin sharp in a way that you do not normally encounter in this type of digital art. Part of the reason that a lot of people don't quite understand what they're looking at when they see my images is that it's awfully convincingly photographic and painterly and pretty real, but yet it's pretty obviously not real. So what the heck is it? And I have the advantage of working as sharp and careful and detailed as humanly possible. And for me, that gives me a bit of an advantage because these images have an incredible characteristic when they're bigger than you. When you're looking at these images on the wall and they're eight feet tall, they have a life of their own. So um, again, that opens up so many questions for me. Mm -hmm. And I have questions written down that I want to ask you about that. Um, so people at home aren't um, withheld and, and um, basically I want to show them as much of your art as I can. Let, let's let's flip through. through. Yes, let's end, do that. At the end, let's... Um, Let's get back to what you're Absolutely. saying because I'm interested in all that. I want to know more. Yes, indeed. But I want I also want people to see your work. Well, so. let's uh, let's gallop a little let's bit through this. Yes. <laughs> and also, I didn't bring a charger for my laptop, and we're moving. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. So here's the next yeah. one. What do you call this one? And uh, what's this inception? A little bit of back background for this one too. I have lately stopped naming my images. Oh, interesting. I okay. used to name them with the care of a poet. And I discovered that the titles were a little too descriptive and a little too distracting because people would say, it looks exactly like you say it does, <laughs> or it sounds like poetry, and it makes me think about certain things. So what I'm in the habit of doing these days is pretty much dumping it on the viewer and saying, you tell me, mm. you show me. Mm. Because if someone's coming at me with ab an absolute blank slate and a completely open mind and says, what is this? My answer in return is, you show me what it is. I already know. I've been there. But this is new. This is new territory. I build these as new objects from the ground up. I want a viewer to see this for the first time and say, where am I? So... What I start doing these days is working the way I want, but, but thinking a little bit less about the titles and uh, just imagining that I'm flowing in this as if I woke up and found myself standing here. In a way, it's a nice, new, fresh way of looking at something because there are no prompts other than your own. So you've got to bring a little bit of yourself into it. In another way, it also uh, requires a bit of participation from the viewer. I know that any viewer is going to look at a piece of art and they're going to invest themselves in it according to their desires. But with an image like this, you, you've got to, got to start from somewhere. You've got to start from a point where it's foreign and it's different. You're not walking up to an old English masterpiece or an Italian fresco. You're seeing something you've never seen before. So it suits me greatly to 
confuse and startle and stop the viewer a little bit and say, now you do the work, you know? Let's uh, move a bit further. This is probably one image where I've got a human form and it's probably the first time I've ever done that. Uh, it was an experiment on my part and uh, I was kind of fascinated with being able to apply the, these moss-like functions to things as if I were building topiary. And uh, so I thought it might be fun to explore a little bit with a human form as if they were some sort of deity in a forest or something. And uh, I got what I thought was a pretty interesting result. And um, I think it hit the right nerve because I got a lot of, uh, a lot of good comments from it. A lot of people saying, oh, finally something's happening in your pictures. Yeah, okay. I'm like, well, is that a compliment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, let's keep going. Here, here is a rather typical image that uh, shows a lot of my regular work habits. There's a con carefully constructed environment with objects that look like a lot of other things and yet retain a bit of abstraction. These things look like they're alive, and yet they don't have a real strong bearing on things that we recognize, unless it looks a little bit marine or uh, maybe like a snail out of its shell or something. Um, for me, it's also helpful to be able to render some of the objects that I put into my images also as abstract entities. Everything is built of components. Not everything needs to look exactly like something to feel like it looks like something. So I build kind of randomly sometimes where I explore these shapes and let it kind of speak its own language. And in the long run, it, it, it classifies itself. And from one image to the next, you see that there are a lot of objects that kind of breathe a personality without actually being a recognizable thing. And yet it looks like it belongs very firmly in its own environment. And that's not an accident. Here's another option. Uh, you wanna go back? Well, yeah, I was just gonna say, um, here's another instance where composition is absolutely crucial. Hmm. There's a circular motion going on here and the center of the image is actually empty space. It's almost comic in a way, but there's a motion and the fronds and the grass, they're pointing at everything. They're leading you around. They're keeping you in this circle of motion that, it's, that is itself a very strong active principle in this image. So, you know, you could also imagine that if I were a photographer, this might be a snapshot of a, of a moving image. So that semblance of activity is very important in, in these types of images. Uh, that impression of movement supports the reality or the realism of the objects as they are rendered. So it confirms even further that it simulates some sort of reality. Here's another uh, iteration of one of those thistle-like forms. And in a case like this, we've got parts of them that haven't bloomed yet, haven't opened up. 
The nice thing about operating, say, as a theoretical botanist, um, I would like to be able to show objects that look like they haven't quite matured yet, or have gone a little bit overboard, or aren't quite ready. This thing is living according to its own means, its own methods. So we're catching it in a state almost of unpreparedness, you know? I'm not just painting or drawing a bouquet of flowers that have all bloomed at a perfect moment. But here's a stage which is not exactly complete yet. So there's a time element in capturing these things in various states of their own lifetimes, hmm. which further uh, contributes to that, that sense of realism overall, you know? Yeah, this one's like almost fully matured in my mind, whereas this one's like still in its adolescence or, or youth. And it's believable. Right. You, you say, I know what's going to happen here. That thing's going to open up, and that's what I'm going to mm, see. There's that anticipation, that tension. Yes. Sure, sure, yeah. Exactly. Same thing here. This, this looks a little bit marine. It looks like it's in fog or underwater. And there's a little bit of motion, like the, the current is pushing things around. Some objects look a little bit transparent or obstructed. Uh, this image is as much about the atmosphere as it is about the objects themselves. So you are once again faced with being immersed in this whole imaginary sensory environment where you can sort of fill in those blanks, you know? Uh, by, by looking at the 3D forms and seeing how they turn and twist, you can also sort of imagine what it's going to look like behind it. So you're filling out this 3D sensibility with your own mechanical reasoning. Hmm. You know, I've helped you, I've helped you three quarters of the way by showing you how convincing it can be from the front. But it's real enough that you can imagine what's going on behind it. So that's intentional, that moment of like concealing and revealing. Absolutely. Like that's, that's a part of this yes. image. You yes. want to, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Let's see the next one too. Here, here's the same thing. Everything's sort of blowing in the wind or moving within the, the, the current. Uh, objects look like they're floating and moving as, as if they were, you know, captured in one perfect moment. The other thing I have a habit of doing too is recycling an awful lot of imagery. Mm -hmm. I've got a shoebox full of parts, mm -hmm. if you will. And what I do is I repeat those things. I make them smaller or larger. I blur them. I make them brighter or darker. I change their colors with the gradients in Photoshop. So although that static two-dimensional masked object is sort of set in stone once it's exported into the Photoshop, I can still manipulate it to a degree. So, you know, I had somebody rather sarcastically say to me once, oh, it looks like you're playing with cutout dolls. You know, you're dressing everything up with cutout dolls. And I said, you couldn't be more correct. That's exactly what it is. I'm refashioning images and 
in a way, you see parts repeated. So there is a connector back to something you saw earlier, a memory. So now when you're looking at an image, you're saying, I remember what I saw two minutes ago, a week ago. I remember something that showed up in another project. It's not duplicated for the sake of economy. It's duplicated for the sake of supporting that underpinning of reality where you're looking at a different version, a different angle of this environment. So in a sense, it's another mental aspect of an image that supports that overall reality because image by image, I don't just have one absolutely new thing after another. I have a slowly developing environment that's revealing itself from a different angle from a different viewpoint, or from a different point in time. And the nice thing about you, the viewer, is you get to imagine these things abstractly, without words, and just assembling this with your own impressions. So, so um, because we're starting to run out of battery, <laughs> let's get into some Q&A, maybe? Absolutely. That'd be great. So in just talking, um, just move this mic so I'm not leaning over. So. I mean, a few things that you pointed out already is you have a kit of parts and whenever we are doing buildings, man, I, I mean, at least me, the way I work, I do that too. I copy, 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 mm -hmm. and you save those out. I mean, because if it's not useful in this project, it may be useful in another project, like you're saying. And what I love about what you're saying is you started to develop this narrative. It's almost like you're, you're building an album as opposed to like just releasing a single if that makes sense. Absolutely. And yes. so it's like something to, to be experienced as a whole, as opposed to like, it's a one-off maybe. And then it's almost like, uh, if you're writing your own signature, it's mm -hmm. like, there's a reason you wrote your signature the way you did almost. And it's yeah. like, it represents something about what you're interested in Yeah. and it's your voice. And I like well, that about what you're doing. The other thing too is not only is it making an album, but it's also making an, 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 an anthology. And what I'm doing is I'm compounding a basic encyclopedia of these, these dimensions that I'm creating with my images. So in a way, one project turns into another, one idea blends into another, and the overall story keeps on happening. It's almost like, you know, writing a Game of Thrones book that goes on and on and turns into another that goes on and on. It's a story that will never end. And for me, that is immensely fascinating because there's no shortage of ideas. And it, it, I cannot see an end point in this type of exploration. I can't remember what artist said it, but he says... Um do something and then do something to it and then do something to that and then do something to that and then do something to that. And it's like this continuous process of yeah, just like yes. reworking and reworking and new, new images emerge new, um, almost like genetics. Like you're, you're producing these new creatures emerge mm -hmm. from doing that. And these, these, um, combinations of forms, it, it breeds new, um, yes creatures and new new plant life well one of, one of the really interesting things about working with art that utilizes an algorithm is that you can get infinite iterations with very little effort and a fantastic amount of uh, complexity 
So uh, there's a physicist named Stephen Wolfram who is pretty popular these days for a lot of revolutionary ideas about physics and the way the world is put together. And uh, the gist of his thought is that the most immense complexity arises out of the simplest parts possible. And the easiest answer is to look at how nature is formed, because we have infinite variety in our DNA and the mutations of forms in nature that basically arise out of some very simple parts. And one thing that shocked me very much a few years into my progress of working with these algorithms and spiral forms and branching objects is that the mathematics I was using looked exactly like the same algorithms found in nature. Sure, yeah, you see. So it makes sense that if you're, and all the you know, if you're, exactly, yeah, yeah, if you're yeah, replicating yeah. one after another and it moves in a certain dimension or form or angle, it's bound to use the same basic math that you'd see in a bending blade of grass. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't have to build every cell in that blade of grass, but my algorithm uses the same basic Logic. set of right. arrangements, and then all of a sudden it starts looking like a blade of grass. Therefore, it is. <laughs> so the basis of my start in a program like ZBrush or Bryce was begin with something small, repeat it, and make it do something. Then get a little better at it, and then put more of them together. And then after putting more of them together, print it out, and then figure out how to make it bigger, and then get in there. So there's a gradual process of being the architect of this world by understanding it fundamentally from its most original building blocks. What's interesting about that is one of the questions I have, and Andres, I know you probably want to talk, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you some, um, some time as well. Um, I just had a question about scale, and I think you're talking about scale right now and the importance of scale and, and the freedom of scale with the computer and not limiting yourself to uh, bounds of reality, mm -hmm. I guess, restrictions of reality and, um, and the real world, I guess, um, being that you, you can create an organic object in the computer and it's in the computer. There's no scale. And so um, you you could set a scale. Say you're working in you know mm -hmm. some technical drafting um, program, but but still you you have the option to blow it up to whatever scale you want. And so you can be looking at something that could be a fraction of an inch, or if you zoom in, it can be the scale of a building, and it's the same object. It has no yes no no uh gravity it has no uh reality to it it could be whatever scale you want and so the experience like you said you you have this effect when you print these objects really large um the effect it has on somebody when they're walking next to this um it, it sort of sets a scale and it sets a tone that you and, and like a filling tone that you want to have as opposed to if you were to print it like on a you know one inch by one inch piece of paper Absolutely. Completely and different. I, I frequently feel that one of the things that I need to do in the landscapes that I create is to literally make things relative so that they're understood. 
A flower has a certain basic size because a flower isn't generally 20 feet wide. So, if you're putting grass next to a flower that has a relativity to that flower, you pretty much understand the space that you're working in. But if you print that flower to actually be nine feet tall, then all of a sudden you're in an entirely different world. So, you know, I, I had this funny experience where I sent my portfolio off to a director of a fancy gallery and got no response. And I thought, well, okay, here's another person who doesn't get what I do. Then I got a little bit uh, annoyed at not hearing an answer, so I sent my portfolio back, but I built virtual spaces to display my work. So I used my digital programs to design the inside of a beautiful, minimalist, Italianate-looking gallery in Milan, and uh, made it look like my images were in this gallery, and that they were 10 feet by 20 feet and they were designed clearly enough to be looking like the, it was a real image. I got a response five minutes later, and the guy says, oh my gosh, what's this? I've never seen this before. And I had the marvelous pleasure of saying, yeah, you saw it a month ago, and you didn't answer me. You know, so he went back and he dug around, he's like, these aren't even the same pictures. I said, no, look closely, they are the same pictures. It's my portfolio in context. And I said, that's the problem. And that's a problem with digital art in our contemporary world. Context. In this case, it's mental and, and psychological. Digital art is frequently marginalized, and it's hard to find a reasonable opportunity to put it into the traditional mainstream. Everybody wants framed work on the wall, in the right part of town. Otherwise, it's not real. So when you're displaying your work, you have to think about who's looking at it and, and how is it dressed up, you know? So working in context is a particular challenge, space-wise, when your environment is entirely virtual, you know? It has its limitations, but like you said, there are some remarkable advantages. And one of them is that there are no limitations. Exactly. So kind of talking about space and environments, it seems like these are a big teaser to a recent technology that's, that's kind of come uh, mainstream of virtual reality. Do you see yourself perhaps exploring that and giving more of a sensibility to some of these works? Absolutely. Completely. For me, there's a great deal of it, it's tempting to want to get inside these images, you know. When I'm designing a dragonfly, I can, you know, zoom out far enough or zoom in far enough where I'm inside the dragonfly looking out, you know. And that's exciting. That's amazing because I feel like I'm my own scanning electron microscope, you know. And when you're two inches tall in that world, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Augmented reality and virtual environments are a remarkable thing that I think we're going to see a lot more of once that technology becomes easier to use and easier to understand. I know that people get what VR is, but to use it a little bit more regularly with greater access to it, it will be less of a unique thing 
and more of something that we can rely on more directly. It might shock us amazingly to see just how far those things go. Also, I made a small movie and I've, I've got it on YouTube. Uh, and uh, it's like a two minute long exploration that I actually built. It's called Microscopic Entities. And uh, I also did the music for it too, <laughs> uh, which was all electronic and composed with uh, Korg components and digital sampling. Um, it was an opportunity to animate the objects because I discovered that in my Bryce program, I was able to animate in a primitive way that extended my my awareness and my skill set with that program. And it was all about uh, an homage back to scanning electron microscopy, but the objects were the things that I myself had devised. So it was kind of like moving through this miniature world of strange abstract things on solid black backgrounds where there was no size reference whatsoever. And it was kind of exciting because I thought, wow, this is cool. It also took two months of rendering one, uh, one frame at a time in a difficult program that required a huge amount of mathematics. So uh, I thought, okay, there's got to be something out there that's better. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I spent, you know, four months of my life making a movie in the Bryce program, which is a really rudimentary program that's no longer in development now. So that's what kind of got me into uh, investigating ZBrush and better programs that um, had a lot more options for quicker, faster design. So um, taking it into another dimension and making something immersive with it, I think is a fantastic opportunity. Um, I had operated as a digital artist for many years making these objects before I actually was able to print one out as a 3D object. And it was quite an emotional uh, thing, all of a sudden being able to hold this tangible object in my hands that had existed only virtually. So in a way it's, it's the reverse of that, it's like all of a sudden you get to touch something that never existed except in your mind. So how was that experience uh, of holding the 3D object and what did that do to your artwork uh, in your mind? It made me want more, it made me want to see them larger and it also uh, compelled me to want to make more sculpture. So I started building them out of cardboard, six feet tall. So I used the same algorithmic process in an entirely different way and I attempted to reproduce what I was doing without the aid of the computer, without any measurement. Basically a straight edge, an exacto knife, uh, and a template that I, that I drew out uh, to prove to myself that Plato would understand it just as easily as, as, as Einstein or, or, you know, some expert virtual artist. So there's a, there's a connection between those things and it, it homes me and it brings me back down to remembering that it's not the computer that makes it. It's not the a computer can facilitate these things, but that algorithm, that geometry, 
that exists within us constantly in our ability to understand it, recognize it, and appropriate it and use it for other things as well. So, you know, you can see that brilliant, uh, complicated spiral in a sunflower head. You can also make it in the computer, or if you know enough about geometry, you can draw it out yourself. So to be able to physically make those things by understanding it and using your, your eye and your hand, that also is, is a fun thing to keep in the mix. I was kind of, I recently was in New Zealand and visited Hobbiton, and there was the tree um, that's used in two of the movies. Yeah. And kind of hearing that you were able to spend four months in, in the virtual world, and the opposite of that, uh, spending four months, you know, changing out leaves, coloring leaves one by one by hand, mm -hmm. and um, two different environments, but the process is almost the same, you know, virtual and, and real, the, the length of time. It is really fascinating because when you have that awareness of working with your hands and a memory for what they've done, you have a mental counterpart of that when you design. Touching things aids in your mechanical reasoning. Having a good mechanical reasoning allows you in return to use your hands differently when you're envisioning sculpture. So one of the things that I take for granted, and I don't talk much about, is the fact that having that kind of mechanical reasoning in a 3D environment is absolutely priceless. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why anybody would not expect to use those things with great return. Because in my images, I know, because I need to be able to, when I'm sculpting, the femur of an ant, I need to know what it looks like on the other side. I need to know the relationship between the femur and the next part, and the thorax, and the abdomen, and the, the basic uh, proportions of these things, even though the thing might only be a millimeter long. So knowing that, you turn the object around and you finish sculpting because you know what it looks like, you have an expectation and presumably a bit of experience having done it before. But it's the same when you're in the real world and saying, okay, I've got a lump of clay. I want it to look like someone's head. I don't want it to look like Mr. Potato Head. I want it to look like Richard Nixon. You have to know and be aware of those differences and somehow or other it comes through. So that mental image and that physical counterpart are linked up perfectly regardless of what dimension you're actually in. So to wrap up a little bit, and I have a list of other questions I've could have asked you. And we'll I have more part two. <laughs> now we, we need a part two, but you can have a part uh, two. I want to get uh, your thoughts on just, I guess, the, the atmosphere of the valley right now and where you see the valley going, uh, where's the valley currently, and um, this is in regards to the culture of art here in the valley. Uh, what can you um, suggest for the valley? I, I, would, I would like to make a cheesy uh, 
parallel and say that it's fertile territory. <laughs> <laughs> the farmland, sure. It is, you know, and it's few and far between sometimes. Uh, there's always room for improvement, but there's a lot going on. And like I've said before, a lot of us don't know each other. A lot of us know that there are others out there. A lot of us are wondering who's holding the ball at any given time. Um, there's room for improvement, but there's a lot that's going on. And it's a little gritty, it's a little urban, it's a little bit local, a little bit spread out. It, there is a great room for potential because we have so many new things going on that other cities don't. And with places like uh, Bitwise and Root Access, we've got an opportunity to start showing people that digital culture or uh, computer culture or technology is competitive in a way that allows us uh, to maybe draw a bit away from Silicon Valley or, or things like that. We have an opportunity to be a new face of new culture because we get to invent it. Hmm. We get to take what, have, what we've seen before and keep building on it like any good artist would do. You take and you mutate and form the parts that exist, and you nurture those things. Um, I'd like to see more public works. I'd like to see more awareness, more events, more education in uh, more more ways of educating the public too. I th I tend to think that um, we need we need a little bit more uh, visual literacy. We need people to understand what they're looking at. I like that visual literacy. That's a good way to put it. I wish that I could take credit for it myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Just like Salvador Dali would. <laughs> I, think, it, I think stealing is one of the best ways of learning. So. <laughs> yeah, and if we can make it better, then it becomes <laughs> ours, you know? Yeah. It, I, think, well, I think that's a good point. So I think we'll end on that. Uh, how can people reach you, uh, view your work? Uh, if you search my name, you can find me on Facebook. If you go to the Behance site, you can search my name, Michael Frank. If you go to the Computer Graphics Society, you can search Michael Frank 600. Makes me sound like a graffiti artist, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, those are some ideal places. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Michael, Michael Frank 115 uh, and on Instagram, it's Silver Knight Sai, S I G H. So I'm here into there and everywhere, I guess. <laughs> cool. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael it's my Frank, pleasure. Thanks for spending some time. Thank you.